Hello, Really True Fiction listeners. I want to let you know that episodes of The Liberal Soul will stop appearing on the Really True Fiction feed at the end of the summer. If you are enjoying The Liberal Soul, please subscribe to it on whatever app you use to get your podcasts so that you can continue to get notified of new episodes starting in September. Have a great day, and may the force be with you. The Liberal Soul is a podcast where I talk to people about their passions and their interests. I'll relay some of my own, as well as discuss works and thinkers important to the history of liberal philosophy. The Liberal Soul is meant to represent the people who are curious about the world and live to see themselves and others flourish within it. Please be aware that this podcast has some crude language and sometimes some bad words, but so it goes. Welcome to part three of a four-part series on the Karl Popper book, The Open Society and Its Enemies, a two-volume book uh, apparently published in 1945, and it is the great philosopher of science and philosopher of liberty, Karl Popper's take on some of the intellectual backgrounds and where they came from that would make people not want to live in the open society, but would rather prefer the closed one. Both first two parts deal mainly with Plato. So if you haven't listened to part one or part two yet, I highly encourage you to go listen to those first, as this episode is going to be much more of a build up on those two episodes. And in today's episode, I will be starting to talk a little bit about the philosopher uh, Hegel and Marx and Uh, Part four, we'll be finishing on Marx, because there's a lot to talk about with Karl Marx's work on potentially the closed society. So with all of that kind of in mind, I just want to reiterate to any listener that I am not an expert on any of these people in history. I am a competent amateur to evaluate philosophy, and I happen to feel very strongly in favor with Karl Popper on his diagnosis of all three of the main targets of this work, namely Plato, Hegel, and Marx. But like I said in the very first part, I, uh, (laughs) being no expert, I know that there's lots of good in their works and things of interest to the world, as we'll find out today, perhaps less with Hegel than with Marx and Plato, but, (laughs) you know, fun to have little feuds between philosophers. But if I'm missing anything that is what something you know in your favorite philosopher, um, I'd love to hear about it. And speaking of that, if you do want to contact me, um, you can send me an email at theliberalsoul87 at gmail.com. There's also a Facebook group you can join, and uh, there's a Twitter account at liberalsoul87, so if you can follow on there if you want. And you can subscribe to The Liberal Soul on all podcasting apps, And if you do listen on Apple Podcasts, I would really appreciate if you uh, have the time to give a rating and review of the show, because that's a good way to help new people find the show. Apparently, that's good for Apple's algorithms. Before I begin, if you want to listen, I recommend listening to part one and part two, which cover basically all of Plato's philosophies. And some of that will be, I mean, I think it'll be just really difficult to understand this episode if you don't listen to the first ones, because we're going to follow through a lot of Plato's ideas as we move into Hegel today. But of course, I need to... uh, 
tell a joke before I begin. So here's one. A termite walks into a bar and says, excuse me, but is the bar tender here? (laughs) So we are beginning volume two. We finished at the end of my part two episode on the end of volume one and Popper's The Open Society and Its Enemies, and we're beginning on volume two today. And the title of volume two is The High Tide of Prophecy, Hegel, Marx, and the Aftermath. And section one of this second volume is called The Rise of Oracular Philosophy. So the rise of philosophy in the sense of it being like an oracle, seeing through to the deeper meaning of things and being able to relate that truth to the common people. And the first chapter, chapter 11, is, (laughs) and there's something you got to, kind of adjust to when you read philosophy in general, but definitely if you're reading some popper, the Aristotelian roots of Hegelianism. Even reading it is kind of hard with all of the Ian and isms added on to the end. And I am someone trained somewhat in philosophy. And even for me, it's kind of tricky. <laughs> so I don't know why I note that. Just by the by. So even though I hold Aristotle in pretty high esteem, certainly more than Plato, and write maybe not as high as Socrates in the great trifecta of ancient Greek philosophers, but he's definitely up there. But there is the main, one of the main downsides of his work is called teleology. And teleology is based on Aristotle's observations of the natural world. He developed this idea of teleology, which is supposed to explain something like the desire of things in the natural world to become something else. So the desire of the flower is to bloom. So the desire of the bud or the bulb is to bloom and become a flower. That is its teleology. The tree desires to grow to its full height. That is its teleology. So the the process culminating in an end is the teleological desire of any of the um, things that he was observing natural world. And, and then I think he kind of equated that into the platonic world. And he was able to give rise to the idea that the, the forms or the essences of something aren't just static in themselves and the beginning of things, but they're also what everything is trying to become. The ultimate end of the teleological process is to return to the form, to the perfect form, to the essence, because everything in the process before is an improvement on the previous state to become something better. And so here's how Popper writes it. Popper. According to Aristotle, one of the four causes of anything, also of any movement or change, is the final cause, or the end towards which the movement aims. Insofar as it is an aim or a desired end, the final cause is also good. It follows from this that some good may not only be the starting point of a movement, as Plato had taught, but that some good must also stand at its end. And this is particularly important for anything that has a beginning in time, or as Aristotle puts it, for anything that comes into being. The form or essence of anything developing is identical with the purpose or end or final state towards which it develops. Thus, we obtain, after all, in spite of Aristotle's disclaimer, something very closely resembling Pisipus's adjustment of Platonism. The former idea, which is still with Plato, considered to be good, stands at the end, instead of the beginning. So with Aristotle, we get a process-driven form of essentialism, not just a being form of essentialism with Plato. And... I don't know how deeply Aristotle intended that or was thinking about that, 
But it's definitely something that I noticed at points in my life that is um, baked into a lot of belief systems, especially Christianity, where teleology is the kind of taken for granted. So when you're in the church and that's the culture you're a part of, it's the idea of basically we live on this life on earth in the process towards going to heaven. That's kind of the teleological end point. And something to notice just kind of psychologically in the teleological worldview is that there are very sharp distinctions. Heaven is literally the end point of existence. It's what everything is all about. So much like a critique, I think, that can be leveled against teleology in the natural world of the flower wants to bloom, well, I would say eventually the flower decays and becomes not a flower anymore and goes back to the earth and the process starts over again. So the end point of the flower blooming is actually just another step in the process of the life cycle of the flower. Uh, Much like in Christianity, (laughs) because of course you can't cut out inquisitiveness in children, they ask, well, what do you do in heaven? And it's just funny to kind of compile all of the thoughts that adults give you in this. Well, you can play tennis or you can see your family. And then, of course, kids are like, well, then what? So this sense of a final end, a final teleology, I think is conceptually mistaken. Because in life, there's always a tomorrow. There's the next day. I mean, I think the concept of teleology is useful if you think about it as simply like a segment of a process. So when I'm learning how to play a new song on guitar, I hear a song, I look up the chords, I practice, I get a little bit better, um, I get a little bit better, and then I can play the song and sing it and whatever. And if you want to call that teleology, I am becoming better at the song. I think that that's fine in the sense that I think it's fine that we use language kind of, like I like to say, we use language at arm's length. There's a teleological element to that in me learning a song on guitar and becoming better at it and then finally knowing how to play it. But I don't need to like make that into a kind of metaphysical claim. I just think that it's an interesting way to think because, I mean, I've learned lots of songs I've forgotten. They haven't stayed in that perfect realm of knowledge forever. The human life is a lot less um, concretized than that. And I think that that's a real misleading thing that can happen with teleology or the forms or anything that's beyond physics, anything that has a metaphysical claim to it or a a platonic claim to it. I think the danger can be if you take it too seriously because it doesn't actually wash out with evidence and experience in life, which is why when you ask what you're supposed to do in heaven, adults look at you like you've missed to the point. Well, you're in heaven. It will just be bliss. It's like, yeah, okay, but then what about after bliss? Like there is no actual intuition around eternity or forever or like maybe if there is a heaven, you start the process all over again and then you have to live super good to get into double heaven. Who knows, right? And then on and on and on. There's something built into human psyche that needs to continue to grow and pursue and act in the world. You can't just rest forever. Psychologically, I think that that's basically impossible. And yet teleology, one of the logical offsets, I think, of a teleological end says, well, yeah, at some point you can rest forever. That's actually the goal. And if you think back to part two of Plato's arrested state, we want static. And I guess the 
people with the open society interpretation of reality say, well, there's no such thing as static reality. It is dynamic and changing. And so the teleological idea, if taken too seriously, can have really damaging effects because it doesn't actually wash out in reality. And I think that, unfortunately, that part of Aristotle has stayed with us quite strongly over time. And this kind of thinking about things has bifurcated into this kind of at least a dichotomy if not more of different ways to even ask questions about the world and popper talks about the different ways that a scientist might ask about the world versus what someone who has an essentialist idea about the world would ask and so here is popper's example popper thus the scientific view of the definition a puppy is a young dog would be that it is an answer to the question what shall we call a young dog rather than an answer to the question what is a puppy Questions like, what is life, or what is gravity, do not play any role in science. In modern science, only nominalist definitions occur. That is to say, shorthand symbols or labels are introduced in order to cut, out a long, to cut a long story short. We can see from this that definitions do not play any very important part in science. For shorthand symbols can always, of course, be replaced by the longer expressions, the defining formula for which they stand. In some cases, this would make our scientific language very cumbersome. We should waste time in paper. But we should never lose the slightest piece of factual information. Our scientific knowledge, in the sense in which this term may be properly used, remains entirely unaffected. If we eliminate all definitions, the only effect is upon our language, which would not lose precision, but merely brevity. And I thought that passage was really interesting when I read it, because the example Popper gives is like, the essentialist asks, what is a puppy? Versus the scientist or the um, empirically minded person, like, what shall we call a young dog? And the question, what is a puppy, is presupposing that there's something deeper about puppiness than it being a young dog. And it needs to be kind of outside of the world of reality in some sense, or outside of the laws of ways that might govern, that we can sharply distinguish between a puppy and a dog. I mean, is an eight-month-old puppy still a puppy or a dog? At what age does a puppy become a dog? I don't know. I mean, it's kind of arbitrary. It's probably based on things like development, maturity in the dog, capabilities, behavior, which age is going to be a major variable in, but not necessarily the decisive one. And I think that that's an interesting way to think about it, is that there isn't a sharp distinction between puppy and dog other than a newborn and a dog that's 15, let's say. When you look at those two, it's quite easy to say. I think living creatures are an interesting example. Like the language we use is based very much on when we come, in, when it comes into our lives and not what it actually is beyond our cognition of it. And I think that that's an important thing to keep in mind from a scientific perspective is that the what is a puppy, um, what is gravity, it's not really the job of science to say that. It's to explain how it functions using natural laws. Again, you could say, what are the natural laws? And then they cash out at the end of our understanding of how they function in the world. I mean, the laws of physics are described through how we understand how they interact with us through our sense data and our measurements. And I don't really know how else to say it. And I've heard people like Neil deGrasse Tyson and Richard Dawkins say things kind of like this. But once you describe what gravity does or you describe the fact that a puppy is a young dog and someone asks a question like, yeah, but what is gravity? What are the laws of physics really? What is a puppy really? I don't know. I just have an intuition that 
what's the there's a philosopher who said that's one question too many these kind of what are the deeper things questions just have no answer and so there'll be an eternal puzzle things that have no answer are perfect fodder for psychological and political persuasion and corruption and deceit because there is no way of arbitrating what is a puppy and if you think of whatever kind of question you could get into the political realm there are lots of questions that are there are no what is the right answer for to take the hardest example there really i don't think there really is a correct moral answer for abortion there are just so many competing arguments from different perspectives and how do we arbitrate this i think the unsatisfying but reality-based answers as best as we can in every circumstance. It's hard to live a hard and fast rule on that kind of thing. That's a more controversial issue, but how to take care of the environment is, again, a negotiation, not a a question like, what is green living? There's no answer to that because it could be more or less. The question is, how can we live in our society in the way that we are now given the kind of creatures we are in a way that does our best to continually minimize our impact on the environment in a negative way while still not taking away amenities that we now really want to live with. I mean, there is no real final answer to those kind of questions. It's just always a how do we want to think about it and tackle the problems as we see them. And I think that that is a huge psychological difference between the scientific mindset and the essentialist mindset. So anyway, that's a little preamble to get us into Hegel. So then this chapter is titled Hegel and the New Tribalism. And I have to say, Popper, has, is, his writing is, for the most part, like very balanced and fair and charitable. And especially when he talks about Marx, he really talks about Marx as someone who had real moral fiber and really wanted to help people. And I'm, I don't have a good standpoint or vantage point on being able to adjudicate any of that. I don't know enough about Marx's personal life to do that. But he's also kind of like understanding of Plato and he's under he's very understanding of Marx and a lot of the other people he talks about is kind of like, for lack of a better term, victims of their time. But it's very different with Hegel. Popper has nothing but restrained vitriol and <laughs> kind of like a bewilderment that this person was ever taken seriously by anyone. And I think he wasn't like, he quotes Schopenhauer, the um, philosopher Arthur Schopenhauer, a lot too, of what Schopenhauer considered to be Hegel's deceit and bald-faced gibberish um, that was self-serving. And uh, all of this becomes a lot more understandable when you find out that Hegel became the um, official philosopher of Germany or Prussia under Wilhelm and was given the seat in Berlin for that. And at the end of all of his very, very, very wordy philosophizing, Hegel comes to the conclusion that all of history is for the perfect state, and the perfect state happens to be the German one, which also happens to really flatter his employer. So (laughs) it's funny, the long way Popper goes to basically say that Hegel is one of the most shameless intellectual charlatans of all time, and that in itself should just be funny, but it's tragic because of how influential Hegel was on thinkers after him, especially in the German and idealism sense. So here's what, here's the first salvo Popper has, and, uh, and he's talking about Hegel. Popper. How can this immense influence be explained? 
My main intention is not so much to explain this phenomenon as to combat it, but I may make a few explanatory suggestions. For some reason, philosophers have kept around themselves, even in our day, something of the atmosphere of the magician. Philosophy is considered as a strange and obtruse kind of thing, dealing with those mysteries with which religion deals, but not in a way which can be revealed unto babes or to common people. It is considered to be too profound for that, and to be the religion and theology of the intellectuals, of the learned and the wise. Hegelianism fits this view admirably. It is exactly what this kind of popular superstition supposes philosophy to be. It knows all about everything. It has a ready answer to every question. And indeed, who can be sure that the answer is not true? So that isn't exactly what I was just talking about, but that was a fact that Hegel is... um, (laughs) probably the hardest philosopher to read that I've ever tried to read. And I mean, I've tried to read Martin Heidegger. I've tried to read Husserl. I've tried to read a lot of those Germans and some of the French philosophers, and they're hard. And Hegel makes all of them seem like a children's book. It is the most double, triple, quadruple negatives. Contradiction is its own thing, which isn't. But then because it goes at a deeper level, it is. It's just nonsense. Most of Hegel, when I try to read it, I don't don't understand heads or tails. And at that point, I think an honest person has to either decide whether there really is something deep and profound here, or if it's intendedly to be difficult because it's covering over the fact that there's very little authentic substance there. And then here's the part where Popper thinks Hegel's success in subsequent intellectual time periods comes from. But this is not the main reason for Hegel's success. His influence and the need to combat it can perhaps be better understood if we briefly consider the general historical situation, because Hegel was writing in the early 19th century, I believe, Uh, late 18th, early 19th. Popper. Medieval authoritarianism began to dissolve with the Renaissance, but on the continent, its political counterpart, medieval feudalism, was not seriously threatened before the French Revolution. The fight for the open society began again only with the ideas of 1789, and the feudal monarchy soon experienced the seriousness of this danger. When, in 1815, the reactionary party began to resume its power in Prussia, it found itself in dire need of an ideology. Hegel was appointed to meet this demand, and he did so by reviving the ideas of the first great enemies of the open society. Heraclitus, Plato, and Aristotle. Just as the French Revolution rediscovered the perennial ideas of the great generation and of Christianity, freedom, equality, and the brotherhood of all men, so Hegel rediscovered the Platonic ideas which lie behind the perennial revolt against freedom and reason. Hegelianism is the renaissance of tribalism. The historical significance of Hegel may be seen in the fact that he represents the missing link, as it were, between Plato and the modern form of totalitarianism. And so that's Popper's claim, is that uh, he's that missing link for modern totalitarianism, and especially because, and this can't be missed either, is that so much of what Hegel talks about is national identity. Plato wasn't that refined because they were living in a time of city-states, but Hegel talked a lot about the German people and the German state as having a kind of transcendental identity that arises through all of its contradictions to be the perfect state. And Hegel did all of this uh, with what Popper calls borrowed thoughts, with singleness of purpose, though without a trace of brilliancy to one aim, to fight against the open society and thus serve his employer, Frederick William of Prussia. And what I think Hegel is most famously known for, to the extent that he's known in popular culture, is his idea of thesis, antithesis, and then synthesis of the two new things. 
but again, in the spirit of the difference between the essentialist or the historicist versus the scientist, Popper notes the distinction between these two things and, and being able to verbalize them is quite important. So uh, here's Popper's thought on that. Hegel asserted that Kant had analyzed reason as if it were something static, that he forgot that mankind develops, and with it, our social heritage. But what we are pleased to call our own reason is nothing but the product of this social heritage, of the historical development of the social group in which we live, the nation. This development proceeds dialectically, that is to say, in a three-beat rhythm. First, a thesis is proffered, but it will produce criticism. It will be contradicted by opponents who assert its opposite, an antithesis. And in the conflict of these views, a synthesis is attained. That is to say, a kind of unity of the opposites, a compromise or a reconciliation on a higher level. The synthesis absorbs, as it were, the two original opposite positions by superseding them. It reduces them to components of itself, thereby negating, elevating, and preserving them. And once the synthesis has been established, the whole process can repeat itself on the higher level that has now been reached. This is, in brief, the three-beat rhythm of progress, which Hegel called the dialectic triad. I am quite prepared to admit that this is not a bad description of the way in which a critical discussion, and therefore also scientific thought, may sometimes progress. For all criticism consists in pointing out some contradictions or discrepancies, and scientific progress consists largely in the elimination of contradictions whenever we find them. This means, however, that science proceeds on the assumption that contradictions are impermissible and avoidable, so that the discovery of a contradiction forces the scientist to make every attempt to eliminate it. And indeed, once a contradiction is admitted, all science must collapse. But Hegel derives a very different lesson from this dialectic triad. Since contradictions are the means by which science progresses, he concludes that contradictions are not only permissible and unavoidable, but also highly desirable. This is a Hegelian doctrine which must destroy all argument and progress. For if contradictions are unavoidable and desirable, there is no need to eliminate them, and so all progress must come to an end. And so Hegel would use this concept of the contradiction being unavoidable and desirable into saying that things were their opposites. It's, it's a kind of intellectual forerunner for that great little, I guess, triad of its own in 1984, uh, where the party's slogan is war is peace, freedom is slavery, and ignorance is strength. Turning something into its opposite through language is something that Hegel did really well, which is confusing. <laughs> Here is a observation made of that by both Popper and then in the words of Schopenhauer. Popper. Plato's philosophy which once had claimed mastership in the state, becomes with Hegel its most servile lackey. These despicable services, it is important to note, were rendered voluntarily. There was no totalitarian intimidation in those happy days of absolute monarchy, nor was the censorship very effective, as countless liberal publications show. When Hegel published his encyclopedia, he was professor in Heidelberg, and immediately after the publication, he was called to Berlin to become, as his admirers say, the acknowledged dictator of philosophy. But, some may contend, all this, even if it is true, does not prove anything against the excellence of Hegel's dialectic philosophy or against his greatness as a philosopher. To this contention, Schopenhauer's reply has already been given. Philosophy is misused. From the side of the state as a tool, from the other side as a means of gain— who can really believe that truth will also thereby come to light, just as a byproduct? I guess the claim by Popper is that <laughs> 
Hegel being a through and through charlatan who gained by the state, who gained by him, the belief that the truth comes as a byproduct is list like a little, a little too much to swallow for a thinking person. <laughs> I think is the point that's being made there by Popper and Schopenhauer. And to make it more kind of like about what we're talking about in terms of the open society and its enemies, the great contribution, and I say great in the sense that it was impactful, not positive, of Hegel in the world was his very, what would be circumloquacious way of coming around to the fact that everything is about nationalism. So I really think nationalism in the sense that we kind of would mean it certainly in a 20th century and even a little bit in the 21st century meaning I, I think comes from Hegel and his concept of the nation because of how much he talked about the German state and the necessity of it. Here is a section of the book where Popper is quoting Hegel. So Popper, here's an outline of this historicist essentialism in Hegel's words. And so here's Hegel. <laughs> As you'll hear, the prose is uh, unique. The very essence of spirit is activity. It actualizes its potentiality and makes itself its own deed, its own work. Thus it is with the spirit of a nation. It is a spirit of having strictly defined characteristics which exist and persist in the events and transitions that make up its history. That is its work. That is what this particular nation is. Nations are what their deeds are. A nation is moral, virtuous, vigorous, as long as it engages in realizing its grand objects. The constitutions under which world historical peoples have reached their culminations are peculiar to them. Therefore, from the political institutions of the ancient world historical peoples, nothing can be learned. Each particular national genius is to be treated as only one individual in the process of universal history. The spirit or national genius must finally prove itself in world domination. The self-consciousness of a particular nation is the objective actuality in which the spirit of the time invests its will. Against this absolute will, the other particular national minds have no rights. That nation dominates the world. And then this is Popper again. But Hegel not only developed the historical and totalitarian theory of nationalism, but he also clearly foresaw the psychological possibilities of nationalism. He saw that nationalism answers a need, the desire of men to find and to know their definite place in the world and to belong to a powerful collective body. At the same time, he exhibits that remarkable characteristic of German nationalism, its strongly developed feeling of inferiority, especially towards the English, and he consciously appeals with his nationalism or tribalism to those feelings which I have described as the strain of civilization. So I guess in a sense you could think of Hegel as kind of like the Steve Bannon of our <laughs> era, understanding the anxieties and psychological weaknesses of the strain of civilization and giving a ready-made, easy-packaged, easy-to-consume answer for a very complicated world. And all you need is to sublimate that individuality to the group, to the tribe, or in Hegel's term, to the nation. And that kind of like sublimation, that giving of all of yourself to the collective that will give you a sense of meaning is I think a hallmark of the closed society and the tribalistic society and not the open one that's curious about the other and wants to learn. You can read that there in Hegel. And of course, what isn't uh, mentioned often in the propaganda, but can't help but be noticed, 
is that these nation states, to become the great nation, you need to wrestle it away from other nations because it's a competition. It's a zero sum to become the great nation. So here's Popper commenting on how the nature of these uh, nationalistic and tribalistic impulses will affect the actual world around them. Popper, a being that draws itself round its own core creates, even unintentionally, the boundary line and the frontier, even though it be unintentionally, creates the enemy. Should we not, therefore, attempt to regulate this unfortunate state of affairs by adopting Kant's plan for the establishment of eternal peace by means of a federal union? Certainly not, says Hegel, commenting on Kant's plan for peace. And then here's Hegel. Kant proposed an alliance of princes, Hegel says rather inexactly, for Kant proposed a federation of what we would now call democratic states, which should settle the controversies of states, and the Holy Alliance probably aspired to be an institution of this kind. The state, however, is an individual, and in individuality, negation is essentially contained. A number of states may constitute themselves into a family, but this confederation, as an individuality, must create opposition and so beget an enemy. Back to Popper. Four, in Hegel's dialectics, negation equals limitation, and therefore means not only the boundary line, the frontier, but also the creation of an opposition, of an enemy. Uh, and so the very nature of Hegel's philosophy bounded to its own core and limitation means it has to have enemies. And so it becomes an incentive. It becomes a desire to fulfill that especially if you overlay this concept of the nation and, and the state in this kind of way that Hegel talks about it with the teleology I mentioned at the beginning of the episode of, well, if this is what the great state is and this is what it wants to become teleologically to become the perfect state in a platonic sense, it creates enemies. It creates the need for enemies because it creates the need for outgroups who are opposed to your tribe becoming that greatness. And I think we've seen much devastation around the idea of nationalism and an unthinking patriotism towards the geography and the tribe that you're a part of. I mean, that's the 20th century for you, to very overly generalize something that Eric Hoffer talked about in his book, The True Believer, that always stayed with me was, true believers can marshal up a mass movement without a god, but never without a devil. And the need of a scapegoat or an enemy is so such a hallmark of this type of thinking with the closed society. Somebody's always out to get you. Someone's doing something terrible to you. It's always someone's fault. There's someone to blame for why our prophesied perfection hasn't come yet. The consequences of this are always reality-based and human suffering on scales that are kind of unfathomable have come about because of this rationalization that is based on, at least according to Popper, and, and I'd say from the extent that I know Hegel too, it, just an intellectual fraudulence. And that is um, pretty tragic, if you ask me. And uh, there's just a couple last things to talk about Hegel here. Um, in reference to the last episode where I talked about the noble lie, there's a section here where Popper talks about how, in Hegel's opinion, if the lie was successful, then it was no lie, since the people were not deceived concerning their substantial basis. Their substantial basis being like another metaphysical ca category of what's actually good for them in the, in the sense of the state itself. So it's just, again, turning a lie into truth because it's a deeper truth 
that again seems to be only ascertainable by the deeply magician-based philosophers of the Hegel ilk, which uh, <laughs> seems like bullshit to me. And it's from Hegel where we get the, uh, not from Hegel, but Hegel very em- much emphasized the idea that war is good for the nation because it helps it become its perfect self. So it glamorizes war in a way that once 1914 rolled around, was <laughs> the uh, powers that be there were quickly disabused of the kind of honorable nature of war once it meets modern technology. But there was also something else that was in Hegel's work, which was around the um, heroic nature of fighting for your nation, for your the state, the becoming of your nation that was important. And I think there was something here that Popper wrote on this topic that I found really interesting and I think worth meditating on philosophically. So, Popper. The conception of man as being not so much a rational as an heroic animal was not invented by the revolt against reason. It is, in fact, a typical tribalist ideal. But we have to distinguish between the ideal of the heroic man, which is capitalized, and a more reasonable respect for heroism. Heroism is, and always will be, admirable. But our admiration should depend, I think, very largely on our appreciation of the cause to which the hero has devoted himself or herself. The heroic element in gangsterism, I think, deserves little appreciation. But we should admire Captain Scott and his party, and if possible even more, the heroes of X-ray or of yellow fever research, and certainly those who defend freedom. So this is again Popper meditating on being able to overcome our cognitive biases towards simply appreciating a hero versus appreciating a hero in their actual pursuits, in their actual causes. So in that example, he talks about, well, there can be heroes in gangster culture who heroically run out and save fellow gang member in a gunfight. But is that really the kind of heroism that's worth taking more seriously than people who do research around malaria medicine or, you know, what are those, those bed nets? that happen that really are successful in Africa or or becoming more successful from what I read. It's an interesting thought of the cause being what matters in heroism more than the heroic element itself. I mean, I think that we rightly admire the firefighter who goes in to the burning house to save the child in the upstairs bedroom because the cause itself is protecting an innocent person from a horrible situation and putting yourself in danger to do that versus probably a lot of things that happen in war, which is hard to say because I'm not a pacifist, but (laughs) there've been enough wars for not good reasons to know that it doesn't exactly seem heroic to ask the people to go put themselves in that harm's way because it's the cause that matters, which is why every I don't know, this is a way bigger topic, but understanding the cause is super crucial if we're going to appreciate the people who sacrifice for it. And to do that, you need an open society because you need to be able to talk about these things, which I think Hegel, the propagandist, was probably pretty aware of. And so that was um, that was like Popper's take on Hegel. And then the next thing he talks about, I'm going to talk about a little bit today, is a couple of the chapters on his beginning of Marx and talking about Marx's plan, and then I'll finish up Marx in the next episode.
So in section two, Marx's methods, he starts with chapter 13, Marx's sociological determinism. Here's the first paragraph that Popper writes. Popper. It has always been the strategy of the revolt against freedom to take advantage of the sentiments, not wasting one's energy in futile efforts to destroy them. The most cherished ideas of the humanitarians were awfully loudly acclaimed by their deadliest enemies, who in this way penetrated into the humanitarian camp under the guise of allies, causing disunion and thorough confusion. This strategy has often been highly successful, as is shown by the fact that many genuine humanitarians still revere Plato's idea of justice, the medieval idea of Christian authoritarianism, Rousseau's idea of the general will, or Fichte and Hegel's idea of national freedom. Yet this method of penetrating, dividing, and confusing the humanitarian camp, and of building up a largely unwitting and therefore doubly effective intellectual fifth column, achieved its greatest success only after Hegelianism had established itself as the basis of a truly humanitarian movement, of Marxism. So far the purest and most developed and most dangerous form of historicism. And one of the things that I found really interesting about reading this book, because I'm not an expert on Marx, is Popper's claim that Marx had a purely historical theory and not an economic one, and even not a political one exactly. And so here's what Popper has to say about that. Popper, Marxism is a purely historical theory, a theory which aims at predicting the future course of economic and power political developments, and especially of revolutions. As such, it certainly did not furnish the basis of the policy of the Russian Communist Party after its rise to political power. Since Marx had practically forbidden all social technology, which he denounced as utopian, his Russian disciples found themselves at first entirely unprepared for their great tasks in the field of social engineering. As Lenin was quick to realize, Marxism was unable to help in matters of practical economics. I do not know of any socialist who has dealt with these problems, says Lenin, after his rise to power. There was nothing written about such matters in the Bolshevik textbooks or in those of the Mensheviks. After a period of unsuccessful experiment, the so-called period of war communism, Lenin decided to adopt measures which meant, in fact, a limited and temporary return to private enterprise. This so-called NEP, New Economic Policy, and the later experiments, five-year plans, etc., have nothing whatever to do with the theories of scientific socialism once propounded by Marx and Engels. Neither the peculiar situation in which Lenin found himself before he introduced the NEP, nor his achievements, can be appreciated without due consideration of this point. The vast economic researches of Marx did not even touch upon the problems of a constructive economic policy, for example, economic planning. As Lenin admits, there is hardly a word on the economics of socialism to be found in Marx's work, apart from such useless slogans such as, from each according to his ability to each according to his needs. The reason is that the economic research of Marx is completely subservient to its historical prophecy. That's a bit of a longer passage, but I think it gets to the heart of the fundamental criticism of sweeping prophecies about the nature of life and social life and humanity is in my other podcast really true fiction we did season two of the tv show fargo and there's a great line i never forgot from that where the main character played by patrick wilson is going to the washroom in a urinal and it's during the 19 ronald reagan is campaigning for president 
and he finds and Patrick Wilson's character finds himself taking a piss beside Ronald Reagan in the uh, washroom on a stop during his campaign. And Patrick Wilson asks Reagan because he's campaigning for president, like how, like because apparently it's like gas prices are through the roof. There's the Iran uh, hostage situation. Things aren't looking great in the United States in in 1979. And Patrick Wilson asks about all of these problems. And the Reagan character turns to him and says, I believe an American can do anything. And the line that stuck with me from Patrick Wilson's character was, yeah, but how? (laughs) Yeah, but how? And my great intuition, which became a criticism of the sweeping prophecies of Christianity and its inevitable takeover of the world because it's the truth, and and same with Marxism, and same with any of these like self-assured, prophetic ideas in terms of whether it's history, economics, supernaturalism, deism, like deification, it will all be all right in the end kind of things is, yeah, but how? How do we run an economy when we're in charge and we're not the minority anymore or the uh, downtrodden? There are millions and millions and millions of people in Russia who all of a sudden have a completely different leadership that was not necessarily to many, certainly not all, and many of their liking. And how do we help their lives now? Well, (laughs) I think we see... We see that. We see when there is no end game plan for a pros- for prospering in life when you don't have anything more detailed than the slogan from each according to their abilities to each according to their needs. Uh, okay. <laughs> Go make a detailed life plan on that slogan, I guess. Well, Soviet Union did. And so then the next chapter that is relevant here is Popper entitled Economic Historicism. And it is... Popper's critique of Marx saying that economics is the determinant factor in how we conceive of the world. That was a big part of um, Marx's work, was that the economics that people find themselves in really are deterministic of their even cognition of the situations that they're in. And Popper points out that actually, that's only part of the truth. The rest of it is that ideas themselves and thinking about our economic situation can actually affect the economics of our situation themselves. It's not a one-way street. It is, in fact, a two-way street between economics and ideas, not a one-way street of economics determines ideas. And here's Popper writing about that to give the example Popper. This, however, is only a minor example of the danger of overstressing economism. Often it is sweepingly interpreted as the doctrine that all social development depends upon that of economic conditions, and especially upon the development of the physical means of production. But such a doctrine is palpably false. There's an interaction between economic conditions and ideas, and not simply a unilateral dependence of the latter on the former. If anything, we might even assert that certain ideas, those which constitute our knowledge, are more fundamental than the more complex material means of production, as may be seen from the following consideration. Imagine that our economic system, including all machinery and all social and all social organizations, was destroyed one day, but that technical and scientific knowledge was preserved. In such a case, it might conceivably not take very long before it was reconstructed on a smaller scale after many had starved. But imagine all knowledge of these matters to disappear while the material things were discovered. It would soon lead to the complete disappearance of all the material relics of civilization. 
And this example made me think a little bit about the internet. If you can imagine all like the physical servers and computers and cords going down or become or disappearing, but there's still be people in the world who know how the internet works and how technology in that sense works. It would take a long time, but we could eventually build the internet back up again. But if all of the hardware of the internet stayed around, but everyone who knew how to run it and how to make it work disappeared or died, all of those things would become useless. And I know that's not exactly the same thing as the contraptions of the means of production, but I think given that we live more in an information age now than a material one in terms of um, our economies, it's an interesting way to think about it is that, I don't know, I mean, again, I'm failing a bit as a Marx scholar here, but I wonder what Marx would think about the economy now based on so much of it being digital and information-based and uh, you can make an argument, but again, this is a, where, this is where I think of the difference between saying there's like a deep historical economism between like an arm's length. Yeah, like the internet can influence the way we think, but it's not one way. The way we think can influence the internet, which is, I think, demonstrative of the fact that creative individuals put their own stuff on the internet, which help people think in a different way and maybe even about the internet. So the lack of determinism, I think, is crucial to thinking about how you might combat some of this Marxist thinking. And that can be kind of a, a thought on a lot of this Marxist thinking is it's if it's a useful way to think about the world, but if taken too seriously, can have disastrous effects. And here's another section of Popper writing about that. Popper. Indeed, the divergence of interests between both the ruling and the ruled classes goes so far that Marx's theory of classes must be considered as a dangerous oversimplification, even if we admit that the issue between the rich and the poor is always of fundamental importance. One of the great themes of medieval history, the fight between popes and emperors, an example of dissension within the ruling classes. It would be palpably false to interpret this quarrel as between exploiter and exploited. Of course, one can widen Marx's concept of class so as to cover this in similar cases and narrow the concept history until ultimately Marx's doctrine becomes trivially true, a mere tautology, but this would rob it of any significance. One of the dangers of Marx's formula is that if it is taken too seriously, it misleads Marxists into interpreting all political conflicts as struggle between exploiters and exploited, or else as attempts to cover up the real issue, the underlying class conflict. As a consequence, there were Marxists, especially in Germany, who interpreted a war such as the First World War as one between the revolutionary or have-not central powers and an alliance of conservatives or have-countries, a kind of interpretation which might be used to excuse any aggression. This is only one example of the danger inherent in Marx's sweeping historicist generalization. And I always felt that too. I felt that there was a, I don't even know how to quite formulate it in my own mind yet, but forget about Marxism for a second, the idea of taking an element of a social phenomenon that is probably true and hyper-focusing on it and making it the entirety of the story and then putting all of your effort into that is obviously, that's oversimplification. And I think the concept of oversimplification is pretty apparent to most people. I just see it. I see it a lot. I see it in Marxism. I see it in a lot of the new kind of social justice stuff is picking on things that are true and, and unjust about the world and that need to be worked on and fixed and reformed and giving it more gravitas and deterministic influence in the world than I think is warranted based on a sober and dispassionate and rational reflection on all of the variables in play. And I know that a sober, dispassionate and rational 
observation of all the variables in play is much less sexy than a passionate hold on to a deep and vital truth on the prophecy of the human condition. But it's also way less violent. And that's where uh, I have to plant my flag, I think. That's the hill worth arguing on, not dying on, (laughs) to uh, make sure I get the right expression in there. (laughs) And then the last chapter I'm going to cover in this part three is his chapter on the legal and the social system. And one of the things that I feel, and Popper points out, is that Marx was in fact reacting to a real injustice in the factories, the child labor and the death and the advantage that was being taken of the people in the factories in the 19th century seems pretty hard to fathom. And there's a few examples given here of like people who suffered, children working, you know, 20 hour days. And so Marx had a certain compassion, we could say, for these people, which started all, which I think is really important to never lose sight of when critiquing Marxism, because it didn't come out of nowhere, morally speaking. And that's the liberal integration of Marx into our thinking, as opposed to the conservative one, maybe, where the conservative one, and I'm, I don't mean necessarily like the fact that Marx might have overstated his position doesn't mean that there wasn't a position there worth talking about in the first place. But as Popper points out later, that a lot of that is actually done through political intervention as much as revolution. Well, not revolution. It's political intervention, which is the thing that Marx apparently didn't have time for in his critiques. And um, there's this concept of formal freedom that was disparagingly described by Marx. So here's the section on that, as opposed to actual freedom in the economic sense. So, Popper. Moreover, from the point of view we have reached, what Marxists describe disparagingly as mere formal freedom becomes the basis of everything else. This mere formal freedom, i.e. democracy, the right of the people to judge and to dismiss their government, is the only known device by which we can try to protect ourselves against the misuse of political power. It is the control of the rulers by the ruled. And since political power can control economic power, political democracy is also the only means for the control of economic power by the ruled. Without democratic control, there can be no earthly reason why any government should not use its political and economic power for purposes very different from the protection of the freedom of its citizens. And so a little earlier in the chapter, Popper had talked about how Marx had kind of been disparaging about this sense of mere formal freedom, a.k.a. the freedom to vote and pick your government, because of how much essential slavery, the economic slavery of the working class was so overpowering that the fact that they could vote in an election seemed a small pittance to Marx. And, And it's understandable, given how horrible the factories were in the 19th century. But as Popper continually comes back to in this book, and I really resonate with, is that this merely formal freedom is actually super important because political power can control economic power if you are still living in a free democracy. And now, again, that leads into a different form. I don't know if Popper talked about about like the rise of the lobbyist power and how much uh, economics can control politics, which we see this is a big issue in 2021 in our era. And I don't know nearly enough about that to think about it. I mean, I, I, I would say to the extent that I can feel what Popper thought about this kind of stuff, he would have had deep criticisms about the influence of politics from the from the direction of corporations and 
Yet, I think in an earlier chapter, that is not the failing necessarily of a democracy. It's a failing of individual members in a democratic state to figure out that problem. But that's a different podcast with someone smarter than me on these issues. Of course, Popper is reacting to the things that were in his era. I thought I just thought it was interesting how he brought up that economic power is therefore entirely dependent on political and physical power. And that we must realize that the control of physical power and of physical exploitation remains the central political problem. In order to establish this control, we must establish this form of merely formal freedom, which essentially allows us to vote. And I thought a little bit about the example, I think it's in season two of House of Cards, where there's that really is like a billionaire businessman. I think his name was Raymond Tusk in the show was arguing with Frank Underwood, who I believe was the vice president at the time in the show about some conflict they were having. And it reached a boiling point and Underwood said to Tusk, you might have all the money, but I have all the guns. And that really boils it down so perfectly. And not many shows put it that bald-facedly either of power. It's that political power controls physical power. And so everything boils down to physical power, who can physically dominate you. And this merely formal freedom is super important. The one that is sneered at potentially by Marxists, the merely formal freedom is what actually allows the potential to even control political power because there are different parties who have different agendas and have different constituents and different values of their constituents. And this is the whole point of democracy is to keep... (laughs) to keep the ruling power more honest because of its fear of losing that power through our merely formal freedom. And I think that that's something worth keeping in mind all the time. And this gets back to an earlier point that Popper made, I think I made in part one, maybe part two, about how long-term policies shouldn't be about individuals, but should be about institutions. And so I want to read his uh, finishing up this chapter and finishing up this part. I want to read his thoughts on that. Popper. The important distinction which we made there was that between of persons and institutions. We pointed out that while the political question of the day may demand a personal solution, all long-term policy, and especially all democratic long-term policy, must be conceived in terms of impersonal institutions. And we pointed out that, more especially, the problem of controlling the rulers and of checking their powers was in the main an institutional problem, the problem, in short, of designing institutions for preventing even bad rulers from doing too much damage. And then a little bit later, Popper continues, The legal framework can be known and understood by the individual citizen, and it should be designed to be so understandable. Its functioning is predictable. It introduces a factor of certainty and security into social life. When it is altered, allowances can be made during a transition period for those individuals who have laid their plans in the expectation of its constancy. As opposed to this, the method of personal intervention must introduce an ever-growing element of unpredictability into social life. And with it, it will develop the feeling that social life is irrational and insecure. The use of discretionary powers is liable to grow quickly, once it has become an accepted method. Since adjustments will be necessary and adjustments to discretionary short-term decisions can hardly be carried out by institutional means, this tendency must greatly increase the irrationality of the system, creating in many the impression that there are hidden powers behind the scenes and making them susceptible to the conspiracy theory of society with all its consequences, heresy hunts, national, social, and class hostility. 
In spite of all this, the obvious policy of preferring where possible the institutional method is far from being generally accepted. The failure to accept it is, I suppose, due to different reasons. One is that it needs a certain detachment to embark on the long-term task of redesigning the legal framework. But governments live from hand to mouth, and discretionary powers belong to this style of living, quite apart from the fact that rulers are inclined to love those powers for their own sake. But the most important reason is undoubtedly that the significance of the distinction between the two methods is not understood. The way to its understanding is blocked to the followers of Plato and Hegel and Marx. They will never see that the old question, who shall be the rulers, must be superseded by the more real one, how can we tame them? And I think this is understandable by the fact that all revolutions need their heroes. I really love this thinking of Popper. If we need to become a little bit more institutional in our thinking, because horrible things can happen in an irrational society. I'm thinking... In closing, I'm just thinking a little bit about this pandemic that we've all lived through and are kind of coming out the other end of now. Without casting too much aspersion on what has happened and the kind of uncertainty and conspiracy theorizing and lack of clarity, I think the next order of business for the Canadian government should be to figure out a very detailed plan of how to deal with pandemics. (laughs) Because there's definitely more of them coming. These are the norm in history. And I would want the politicians of my country to bear in mind the idea of how do we not do too much damage? How do we not add to the harm in our governing um, more than how can we heroically get people through this. I think that there's something to be said there for that merely uh, merely formal freedom and stability in a nation. Like it was in part two, it's not democracy itself that's to blame for the failings in democratic states. It's on the citizens in those democratic states to look the failings of their nation square in the eyes and attempt to do better. And I think that that's a really inspiring message from a lot of the work I get out of Popper. And so I guess that's the sentiment I'll leave you with today. So anyway, I really appreciate everyone who listens to this podcast. This was part three of a four-part series on the book, The Open Society and Its Enemies by Karl Popper. You can find me on Facebook, The Liberal Soul. You can send me an email, theliberalsoul87 at gmail.com. And you can find me on all major minor podcasting apps. Thanks once again for listening. You found the liberal soul.